This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you for joining us again. What do you do as a minister when the denomination of which you are a part is on a steep downgrade? Well, sometimes you stay and you work for biblical renewal, as many faithful Christians over the years have tried to do in denominations that were going liberal. And sometimes you have to leave and sometimes you take your church with you. And today we're going to hear from one vicar in the Church of England who recently did that. Reverend Melvin Tinker had been vicar of St. John Newland, Kingston upon Hall, England, for more than two decades. But out of that church, a new network of churches has now been formed. Reverend Tinker is also the author of several books, including That Hideous Strength, How the West Was Lost. And he joins us now. Reverend Tinker, so good to have you back. How have you been? Uh, Very well, thank you. It's a delight to uh, be with you again, Janet. Thank you for inviting me onto your show. You are so welcome. It's always nice to talk to you. And I think the last time we talked, you were still in the Church of England, but now you've left. Tell us what happened. Okay, well, um, in fact, we've been planning this for two years now, since 2017, um, because we we saw uh, the direction in which it was going. We we knew 2020 would be a crucial year. We didn't realize that it would be like this with COVID and everything. Yes. Um, But um, in 2017, um, there was a a big, uh, what what the General Synod of, of the Church of England met in York, not too far from here, and that was when it was, you know, the, the liberals so far have been fairly, very, very English, you see, and um, uh, tend, tend to uh, be nice and, uh, and, and, you know, try and play the game, but basically luring uh, evangelicals into a false sense of security. But at that synod, uh, all the mass were off. Uh, they took the mass down, the mass slipped, and the sheer animosity and... Uh, hatred, really, that's the only way you can describe it, that many of those um, Synod members uh, had towards those who were of orthodox persuasion was quite um, remarkable. Um, the Archbishop of York, the then Archbishop of York, uh, John Santamu, acted appallingly. He was incredibly rude uh, to, to uh, someone who was a great uh, champion of, of, of truth in this country. And uh, our church at that point said, okay, we, we wrote to the archbishop, there's an open letter which went to the press, basically calling him to repent and to change. Um, and we didn't get the response we were hoping for, <laughs> to expect it really. Uh, and at that point, we stopped giving all money. Any, uh, we didn't give us another cent to the Church of England. Um, and we, we haven't seen it in 2017. So, two, so uh, and in 2020, what was going to happen is that the Church of England was going to produce a report called uh, Living in Love and Faith. Basically, uh, we knew where it was going to go, uh, and that was to affirm uh, same-sex relationships. Right. Now, that report hasn't come out yet because of the delay with COVID, but uh, there's no doubt that's where it's going to go. And then, of course, now we, we have the appointment of the Archbishop of of York, the new Archbishop of York, uh, Stephen Cottrell. We, we spoke about him last time, mm-hmm. and he's as liberal as liberal can be. 
Um, it, it's just a dreadful situation. So we thought, well, we, my first priority is to protect the flock uh, against the wolves. And I, I was coming up to retirement. I, in fact, I, I wasn't due to retire until I'm 68. I've now just turned 65. And um, there was no doubt in my mind um, that uh, if I were to leave, they would not replace me of the same, with someone of the same theological persuasion, even if the Church wanted that. Right. And uh, the diocese made that very, very clear uh, about a year or so ago. Um, so we thought, okay, we don't want to be caught on, on the back foot. We need to make plans. And prayerfully, that's what we've done, and we've formed a network of churches called Christchurch, Christchurch Network in, in, in Hull. And um, even in spite of the difficulties we have because of lockdowns and so on, uh, the churches have got off to a very good start. Well, that's great. Going back to what you said earlier, when I like how you said this, because this has been my experience, too. The liberals are always really nice and very kind Mm. until they're not. And then the mask comes off and then you see what they're really all about. How did you how did you first begin to see the mask slip? Was it the LGBT issue that really became the linchpin or were there other issues along the way pertaining to orthodoxy? Um, Well, as, as it, you know, it's, it's the usual, you know, proverbial boiling of the frog. It's, it's, it's uh, right. you know, you, you gently raise the temperature until eventually the frog dies. And that's what's been going on, uh, certainly in the Church of England, for, for many years. But it's accelerated, I guess, in the 1990s uh, and through up to the present situation. And the acceleration uh, w- was phenomenal. I, I um, there was always certainly the softening towards the, the gay issue. That was the presenting issue. Um, but in this case, um, the, the, the last uh, with that 2017 synod, it was the trans issue, <laughs> actually. And um, what uh, was being proposed, well, there were two things, really. Uh, one, um, there was a, uh, a motion against what they call conversion therapy. That is, uh, anyone who has same-sex attraction and wanted help were not going to be allowed help. Yeah. They were told that it was a, a, a cruel thing to do, okay? Mm. Um, so if you, you weren't allowed to pray for someone, that would be considered to be abusive. Okay, so there's that. <laughs> and then, ironically, the second was uh, for those who were trans, uh, or claimed to be trans. So if uh, someone was male, claimed so designated to be female, we had to accept that. So on the one hand, the person who wants to change, if, if you like, in, to a, in a normal direction, they couldn't. Those who wanted to change in what I consider to be an abnormal direction, well, that's got to be supported. Yeah. And not only that, but they wanted to change, they wanted to use the baptism service as a, uh, to be used for those who have, um, uh, you know, changed change their, their, you know, their gender. Yeah. So it's an abuse of the sacrament. Ugh. This is, you know, and um, and those who spoke out against it were booed and hissed. It was, it was dread. It was a shameful episode. Yeah. Yeah. But th- that was. Um, it was coming. It's been coming for a long, long time. Yeah, that you know, and that's so tragic to see it happen. It's obviously happening here in the United States as well, where you're mm-hmm. seeing this LGBT nonsense creeping in, and it, it's so 
ironic in some ways because it's not like the Bible is silent on these things. And it's not like we can't read the word of God and see clearly what God uh, condemns, which is homosexual behavior. And it's clear that God made the male and female and you can't change sexes. It's, it's obvious even if you weren't a Christian, but it's especially clear to Christians. Is there just a hostility in some ways? I don't know if I want to say it that way, but it, it, to really being corrected with scripture. I mean, is, is it down to oh. that? Oh, the last thing you do, <laughs> you try quoting scripture in a, in a reasonable, uh, in, a, in a responsible right way in Synod, and you'll be howled down. Um, but of course, scripture is quoted often by the liberals, but of course misquoted. Yeah. So, for example, uh, there's one uh, proponent of, um, uh, of the gay agenda and transgender over here, called, a woman called Jane Ozan. And she claims to be an evangelical. She's the evangelical and a Hindu. You know, it's <laughs> ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but um, so so her um, prized text is is from Psalm 139 um, that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. God has made me this way. I I have attraction to women. I need to express that sexually. Uh, and and God doesn't make mistakes. Well, I mean honestly. Um, so, but this is a this is a prime heresy, which was called Sicinianism, um, way back in the in the in the sixteenth century, yes. and it's basically denying that we're sinful. Yeah, something called original sin. Right. Um, because then you think, well, why did Christ come? What did he come to save us for? If we're so fearfully, wonderfully made, things are fine. Sure. Um, and so, okay, the notion of sin and corruption is, is out. And so, yes, scripture is, is quoted, but misquoted and misapplied. And that's what's so tragic about it. Well, you know, it, it's a very interesting story, uh, what's going on with you and your church and this new Christ Church Network. I want to pick up the conversation with Reverend Melvin Tinker. We're going to come back on Janet Meffer today right after this break, so don't go away. This is Janet Mefford for Bible League International. What did you pray for today? Good health, safety, maybe to meet a goal? Those are good things to pray for. But pastors and evangelists in the Middle East aren't praying for material blessings or for an end to the persecution or difficulties they face. Rather, they're praying for copies of God's Word so that believers will be spiritually nourished and strengthened to live out their faith in this challenging part of the world. Many of our brothers and sisters in Christ in places like the Middle East, Asia, Africa, and Latin America live each day without their very own Bible. But you can send one today. Give one Bible for only $5, 20 Bibles for $100, or 200 Bibles for $1,000. Whatever you'd like to give, you can become a Bible sender by calling 800-YES-WORD. That's 800-YES-W-O-R-D. 800-YES-WORD. Or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. 
This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. A burning issue worthy of public discussion across America is expanding the Supreme Court. Our government was designed to have three independent branches for an effective system of checks and balances. Court expansion would undermine the independence of the judiciary branch and make it a political arm of the legislative branch with partisan results. Watch a new video on the critical importance of the Supreme Court in ending abortion. Visit lifeissues.org and click on the top banner. Hi, this is Janet. It's been exciting to see so many of you help our ministry partner, Heart for Lebanon, this month. We had a goal to help bring the hope of Jesus to 100 families, and I'm so pleased to be able to tell you that to date, over 200 families have been served. We thank God for those of you who participated, but if you didn't have a chance to invest in what God is doing there, it's not too late. Just call 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Well, it is always a tragic thing when Christians have to leave a church or have to leave a denomination in order to be faithful to Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, we've seen this go on over and over again, and it's necessary. I mean, we understand that the divisions that we see in front of us, Scripture talks about the fact that those divisions will show who has the truth. And in the case of Reverend Melvin Tinker and his church over in the UK, they have left the Church of England and now formed this Christ Church Network in Hull, England. Uh, you were saying, Reverend Tinker, before we went to break, that you, you know, you've know you had this whole, you took a lot of flack over the LGBT issue in particular in your position there as a, as a vicar. But the problem here is there seems to be this commitment to, like you said, in the case of the woman you were referencing, uh, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. So if I'm LGBT, that's how God wanted me to be. And that really is a denial of original sin. So when you were going through all of this and when this was all unfolding, was your church with you the whole time? What kind of support did you get from your own congregation when all of this was unfolding over the last several years in particular? Um, complete support, and 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 I think it's, it's a testimony to God's grace and the the, uh, the 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 way in which the members of the congregation have attended to God's word. They've taken it seriously and they've applied it, um, and so they they could see that the ministers were were people of integrity uh, and were willing to take the flack, because that's another important thing. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, when Paul talks about, you know, um, making up in his own body the, the sufferings of Christ, um, th- that's what ministers do, you know. So for a lot of the, the, the time, um, I've taken the flag out. It's drawn towards me rather than uh, the sort of church members. Um, and a lot of things obviously have been going on behind the scenes, which, you know, they're not aware of. Um, and, okay, that's, that's part of what it means to be a, to be a pastor. So the, the church was wonderful. So as we, I said, we, we, we were planning this two years ago. We, the church council was unanimous that we, we um, pursue this. Uh, we formed a little a working party, called it a 2020 vision, um, uh, as we were working for 2020, and we had this vision to form this, this new network. It's still Anglican, but not Church of England. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, and just to, be, to throw off the constraints of the Church of England, uh, so that we can now plant churches all around the, the country, uh, so, indeed around the country, but around the city, um, without legal proceedings being taken against me. I mean, legal proceedings were threatened against me. Oh, wow. Uh, anyway, you know. Yeah. Um, 
which is again, you just think, well, boy, these people have lost the plot. You know, I, I, I know the minister, the other side of the, the city, he's not even sure there's a god. He has a congregation of about three or four. Okay, and he gets paid the same salary as I do. Oh my. Okay. he's okay. No proceedings against him. We have a congregation. Well, meetings are, you know, over five or six hundred on a Sunday. Um, and I'm threatened because uh, I've, uh, I've got two ministers who are Episcopally ordained, fine, but operating without a bishop's license. Um, and they're, they're fine young men, brilliant preachers uh, and evangelists, and the church has grown under them. But it's, it's, the, it's the Phariseeism, it's the sort of thing Jesus um, condemned. They, they strain gnats and swallow camels. <laughs> it's a shame, and, um, and, and, uh, and so over the, it was quite interesting, that over in, in our diocese, your diocese, that in the last uh, 20 years, the number of adults attending has dropped by 20, over 20%, and the number of children by 56%. Mm. Uh, whereas when I came 25 years ago, um, you know, our congregation was about 140, and you had about a dozen children. And now, as I said, we're talking about 600 and over, well over 100 children. I mean, wow. it's quite phenomenal. Uh, and, uh, and nationally, the largest 5% of churches, on average attendance, all age attendance on a Sunday, is 160. Hmm. And we're, so I know you, in America you have thousands of people in mega churches. Uh, but that's what we are, relatively speaking, yeah. uh, in our country. Yeah. And yet, all I've had is just hassle from these guys, you know. Goodness. That it would be so. Well, and that, that says something about how God blesses. It's not always the case that God will bless with numbers only, but the, the fact that you continue to be faithful to the Bible and you see your congregation growing the way it has, that's got to be encouraging. I, I'm wondering how many churches over the years have left the Church of England the way yours has? Uh, uh, you, you could count them on one hand. Goodness. Uh, I, can, I, can, I, can, I can think of um, I can think about three, to be honest. That's but it. we're the largest. It's not been known a, a church our size to do this, and yet the media coverage has been zilch. Hmm. The response has been zilch, even from evangelicals. Um, this is big news. I, I thought, I thought, oh boy, we better get press release. We, we're ready for this for the press. So we had everything uh, lined up. And basically, we've been ignored. Uh, and to some extent, okay, fair enough. You can understand the establishment of ignoring it, because what happened is that this happened, we left more or less the moment the new Archbishop of York came in, and that would not have looked good for him. Largest church in his diocese, they go yeah. as soon as he arrives as liberal. Right. But what's, uh, I think, tragic is that um, the evangel- Anglican evangelicals have not picked up on it. They've not commented. Huh. And I know why, because it... it because in a sense it puts them in a difficult position. We've done it. Why other members of the congregation, their congregation, will say, well, why haven't you done it? That's right. Yeah, right. Um, it puts and they pressure. don't want to. Mm-hmm. Many just, they're quite comfortable, thank you very much. And um, we'll keep our heads low and keep on until eventually, well, the gospel's diluted, I'm afraid. Boy, that's, that's crazy. I, you know, I thought what was interesting in a write-up that I had read about what you're doing is one of the other reasons you cited for making the decision to leave the Church of England was pertaining to the personal integrity of the ministers, not necessarily yeah. being involved in guilt by association outright, but embarrassment and shame for being part of a same, the same organization as those whose intention was to undermine the work of the gospel. In other words, you wanted to separate from those that you've actually 
talked about as antichrists, as a you know, a la First John. Yes, yes, and you know, when when you look at First um, John and, and the second letter of John, particularly, where it said, you know, you're not even to welcome these people into your household. How can you have evangelicals welcoming heretical bishops into the pulpit? Right. That's what's happening. And I just can't get my head around it. You know, how can you preach one thing on a, on, on a Sunday uh, against heresy or promoting the truth, and then the next Sunday you have someone who's clearly a heretic? True. Um, there's this inconsistency. And, and so it's for the sake of integrity, it's gospel integrity. There's got to be the marriage between belief and behavior. Otherwise, um, well, we're, we're, well, I think God's name is dishonored, and the, the non-Christians can see it, and they'll think, well, you say one thing, you do another. It's called hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. You're right about that. You know, this brings up an important question because we face the same sorts of situations here in different ways, but there's always this question about when is the right time to leave? When do you stay and work for biblical renewal? When do you give it up and leave? That's a hard call to make, I think, for a lot of Christians. And, you know, we've gone through this in our family, and I know what it's like to have to deal with this kind of a thing uh, in different denominations. But what, what do you say to American Christians? or American pastors in particular, uh, I'm thinking about some denominations now that are in the process of going more and more liberal. How do you make that decision? I, I have no choice at this point but to leave. Uh, it's not The renewal thing is just not going to work. Yeah. It's a wisdom call, isn't it? And, and one's got to look at one's own situation. Um, and, um, you know, I've been in the Church of England for, you know, all day now, anyway, for, for 37 years. And work from within to try and change things and, and uh, you know, do that. But um, we, as one's seen over the years how it's got progressively worse um, and those people in key positions of power um, are effectively liberal, even if they call themselves evangelical. They're, they're, they're liberal evangelical, if you like, some of them. Um, then it comes to the point where you recognize, I think, it's impossible to change. I think it's irreformable. The Church of England is irreformable, as is the TEC over in, in your country. Um, and therefore, it's irreformable. What yeah. will happen? It will, people who remain in it will become corrupted by it. So I think the Church of England is a corrupt and corrupting organization. Hmm. And if you care for people's souls, uh, your own people, the, the, the Christians, but also you want to reach out for non-Christians, you cannot be part of of, of uh, an organization which is part of the problem, which is actually sending people to hell. It's antichrist, anti-gospel. Right. It, 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 you know, it's like trying to build a house and there's someone just coming in every, uh, as you're doing it, taking away the, the bricks as you're laying them. Hmm. You, you just can't work in that situation. So we came to the conclusion, um, yeah, this is our conclusion, now was the time, or in two years' time it was then, uh, would we'll, we'll be to do it, and we worked towards that and prayed about it. And um, there's a great sense of liberty now. There's a great sense of liberty. We can actually get on um, with integrity to do gospel work and, and pray that we'll see many more saved. That is really great. So things look good now for your new church network, I understand. They, they do, yeah. I mean, obviously, we've lost the church building, our main yeah, right. building, which we spent, I guess, a uh, half a million dollars on not too long ago to, to be renovated. But, okay, God will provide. So uh, the large, uh, we've got three uh, churches meeting at the moment. Um, 
and uh, the, the largest, which is Christchurch Newland, uh, is now meeting in a in a in, uh, in, in a, uh, a, a school, actually uh, a sixth form college uh, in in a theatre. So, which is fine. We're, we're renting that, um, and um, and we've got two other congregations as well. A new one that's just been formed in, in a fairly uh, sort of blue collar area, as you was, uh, as you would say. Yeah. Um, and we hope to form more. Good. Um, pray that we will. Well, I pray that you will as well, and God bless you for taking a stand like you have, because even if you haven't immediately seen other evangelical congregations follow suit, maybe they will down the road. We'll pray for that. Reverend Melvin Tinker, thank you so much, Reverend Tinker. Always good to talk to you. You too. Thank you again, Janet. You bet. Take care. God bless you. We'll be back. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Preborn. For $140, you can provide ultrasounds to five women in crisis pregnancies. Call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229 or JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. Can you imagine what it would be like as a Christian to have no Bible No Bible to read, no Bible to memorize, no Bible to study. It's unthinkable to us, but it is a reality for a lot of Christians around the world. And that is why we're so excited to be partnering with Bible League International to get copies of the Word of God to believers who have been praying for them. For only $5, you can send one Bible to a believer in need. $35 sends seven Bibles and a gift of $100 will send 20 Bibles. You can call 800 yes Yes, word 800 Y E S W O R D 800 Yes Word or there is a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com and we're going to talk some more about why this Bible campaign is so important right now with Michael Woolworth who is senior director of broadcast media at Bible League International. Michael, great to have you back. How are you? Hey, Janet, great to hear your voice, and thanks for being such a good friend of Bible League. The result is that literally thousands and thousands of Christians who were formerly labeled what? Bibleists now have God's Word in their own language. you got the best listeners in the world. It's uh, really a joy for me to come on for another few moments and just let your listeners know about the need uh, for Christians around the world without God's Word. Well, it's our pleasure to have you here, Michael, and we love what Bible League does because it breaks my heart. I don't even like that word, Bible-less. We need to get rid of that word altogether, don't we? Yeah, amen. Yeah, how, how much need is there right now for Bibles around the world? Just give people a little bit of an overview of how dire the circumstances are globally. Well, the year 2020 uh, marks our 82nd year in ministry uh, for Bible League. Our genesis came good Friday in 1938, and the founders uh, of Bible League always wanted to be in a position to engage people with the Word of God, not merely giving the Bible out, not trying to create a spiritual experience for people, but to engage them in the Word of God by coming alongside what we call the under-resourced church around the world in places like Asia, Africa, the Middle East, and Latin America, where they don't lack zeal, they don't lack a great love for God. What What, what is it? Well, for some reason, and his, his sovereignty, God puts them where it's very challenging to live out your faith, even challenging to get something that's so elementary to the Christian faith, and that's a Bible. And that's, that's where Bible League uh, comes in, and where we serve in places like India and China and Tanzania, Africa, um, uh, 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 Quito, Ecuador. 
Uh, Janet, we estimate that as few as one Christian in 10 has a Bible. What's that mean? 90% of the evangelical community has not, during this time of pandemic, been able to open their Bibles on a daily basis and be reminded of what uh, really sustains our families during this time. That's verses like what? First Peter 5, 7, cast your cares on him, for he cares for you. And so um, we're doing something about it through this communication today. I mean, it, God has allowed Bible League for 82 years to do the heavy lifting, the relationships on the ground, the translation work where it's needed, uh, developing the Bible study materials. And so the lighter lifting, if if you will, simply concern Christians to say, you know what, it ought to be intolerable in our minds that Christians around the world, especially in places like the Middle East, lack a Bible because of corrupt governments and majority religions. There's other reasons, remoteness and poverty, but, you know, taking that empathy a step further into action is really what makes it possible for Christians to have Bibles around the world. Yeah, well, you mentioned the Middle East, and whenever you hear about the Middle East, you think about the threat of Islam, but Hinduism is also a threat to Christians. And I know that you guys also work in India. Do you have any stories to share from that part of the world? Yeah, let's uh, let's linger in India. 1.4 billion people call India home. It's uh, the land of Gandhi. I'd say long gone are the days when he, you know, promoted a a, a, a more humane uh, Hinduism. Uh, they've got uh, laws on the books, Janet, where it is illegal in some of the villages there to actually carry a Bible to share your faith in Christ. They have said that they intend to um, um, enforce a lot of those laws come 2021. I know our our president, his administration, have been uh, conversing with the prime minister there to try to ease some of those uh, restrictions. But let me tell you about a man by the name of Jay Ash. Not too long ago, he was a radical Hindu. Uh, Janet, he would uh, he would burn churches, he would assault Christians, um, but he came to saving faith. He did that through a Bible League program that gives the gift of literacy. As we engage people around the world, find out they can't read or write, you've got another problem. So we created this program decades ago that gives people the gift of literacy, and the reason is the Bible is the backdrop to that program. So as they're learning learning about, uh, you know, forming letters in the Tamil language. They're also learning about Jesus, the great lover of the soul, and that's what his story is. He went through that program, learned to read and write, came to saving faith, actually went on to become a pastor, received some theological training, and went through our Bible League church planner training program. Now, we don't plant uh, churches around the, the, the world. What we do is where there is these communities of uh, believers uh, emerging, Janet, we help them grow that into a local church. And that was his story. It's simply this. He prayed to God, where should I plant a church? Jumps on his bicycle in coastal India, goes into a village where, as far as he knew, never a Christian, never a Christian church, and he shares the gospel with the cobbler, the shoemaker in that village, who quickly comes to faith, uh, leads his family to Jesus. They go through Project Philip from Bible League. What is that? It's uh, Christianity 101, the Gospel of John, paired together. Uh, You know Philip the Evangelist in Acts 8, who leads the Ethiopian uh, eunuch to faith in Christ. So in the spirit of that Philip, That's what we're talking about. But this man uh, very quickly sees the gospel grow from 50 to 100, 150, 250, 500 people today, one half of that village following Christ. And it happened through, again, just kind of the humble, winsome efforts of a pastor using Bible League materials. Now, Janet, unless this sounds uh, easy, like it happened without much effort. Let me tell you what happened. J.S.'s house burned down not once but twice. His wife violated. Many in the congregation assaulted. They really had to petition and pray hard to get a little square uh, tract of land to be able to construct nothing more than a glorified picnic pavilion. But they are a church in India, and Janet, they're praying for the Bible, about 250 Bibles right now in the Tamil language. 
And the way we've been able to carry in our ministry, frankly, is carrying groups of people that say, you know what, I'm not going to sell everything and go to India, but I definitely, I know I can do things from the comfort of my home. And that's exactly what they can do to the tune of $5 a Bible. And as you do this, what are you doing? You're helping these Christians become faithful Bereans. You remember the Bereans in Luke, uh, Acts 7, they received the word with eagerness. And yep. then they went home and they opened their Bibles, their scriptures to make sure what they were being taught was the gospel truth. And that's what you're helping these believers in India do today. That is so neat. And you know, for a lot of people, I'm sure the reaction is, how in the world can you get a Bible over to India for $5? I mean, that's such an inexpensive means of being able to present somebody with a copy of the Word of God. That's that's such a low cost, Michael. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, long gone are the days where you printed a Bible in the U.S., you put it on a ship, and you hope that many months later it reached it. We work with printers around the world that do print on demand. They print it where it's safe, and we say, you know what, we just did this campaign. We've got more funds to be able to commit to this part of the world. And so roll the presses, if you will. And what a joy for me in my role at Bible League is kind of the eyes and ears of the ministry to tell Christians around the world like J.S., hey, those Bibles you're praying for, they're coming. Yeah, They're coming. That's right. That's right. So people who want to help out right now, these Bible-less believers, as we call them, Michael, for only $5, you can help. You can send one Bible to a believer in places like India, the Middle East, and all the other places that Bible League International is at work. Just call 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, or there's a Bible League banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You know, I know, Michael, and I'm sh- I am absolutely confident you're aware of this, that this has been a very challenging year for a lot of us mm. here in the United States. For many Americans, budgets are tight. Why would you say Bible League International is a good investment? That if you do contribute $5 to buy a Bible to send to a believer on the other side of the world, that is $5 worth sending. Well, I think two reasons. Number one, Janet, you've been a good friend of this ministry for a long time, and I think that this is a safe investment. Your listeners know you. But the other part of this is that I'm here today to tell you the gospel's going forth. Even during a time of pandemic and election year where we think, okay, the gospel probably shuts down. No, it's still going forth. And again, the basic the basic work of the gospel is what? Is to bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. God gets all the credit for that. We get to play a, sp- a small part at Bible League. But again, and this is exactly what your listeners are doing, is helping us make good on our promise to get the Bible into the hands and hearts of these believers. So this is something that you can believe in today. You don't have to make a, a huge gift. You know, $5, do the math, do what's meaningful for you and your family, knowing that God will take it. Listen, His Word will not return void. It will accomplish all that He purposes. Amen. Well said. Michael Woolworth from Bible League International. You can call now 800-YES-WORD, 800-Y-E-S-W-O-R-D, if you'd like to donate $5 to send a Bible right now to a Bibleist believer. So grateful for you, Michael. Thank you so much for joining us again. Thank you, Janet. God bless you. We'll be coming back on Janet Meffer today, right after this. Don't go away. Open enrollment is here, and choosing a health care program is an important decision for you and your family. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up now with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping 
helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. You can find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen and knowing that there's life growing inside. I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Preborn currently has seven centers without ultrasound machines. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost $15,000, more than most centers can afford. But right now, through a matching grant, your donation of $7,500 will place a machine in a needy women's center in your area. To donate, call 855-402-BABY, 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. This is quite a story. I want to talk about this a little bit, recognizing that not everybody is on social media, not everybody is following different accounts. And if you're just sitting home and you're watching your regular TV news networks, you might not know about this. So let me fill you in on what's been going on in Pennsylvania. You might have heard about that whistleblower. If not, I'm going to tell you about him. It's a Pennsylvania postal worker by the name of Richard Hopkins. He's a mail carrier in Erie, Pennsylvania. He got together with Project Veritas. This is the organization founded by James O'Keefe, and they do this kind of guerrilla journalism. They've done a lot of great work exposing ACORN and, and some of these other organizations, a lot of stuff. You know, we've played these videos before, the audio from the videos on the show, and they do real journalism. They expose Antifa. They expose all kinds of nefarious dealings that are going on across the country. So Project Veritas and James O'Keefe, the head of it, talked to this mail carrier and he revealed that there was some ballot tampering going on in the U.S. Postal Service and his supervisor had told him to predate the ballots. We talked about this a couple of days ago. Well, here's the latest. This is from the Washington Times. Hours after House Democrats announced that a Pennsylvania postal worker had recanted allegations of ballot tampering, the mail carrier denied it, saying that he stands by his original statement and that he got played by federal investigators. Richard Hopkins said in videos released by Project Veritas that he never intended to recant his claims of possible ballot fraud after he was grilled by investigators from the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General. So just to kind of summarize what went on here, after he went public, they sent some federal agents in to have a little discussion with him. And it is unbelievable. It's unbelievable what these federal agents did to this guy. Total coercion. 
It was Soviet-style stuff. It was absolutely incredible. Project Veritas Chief Legal Counsel Jared Ede accused the investigators of coercing Mr. Hopkins into signing an affidavit, recanting his claims, failing to give him access to his attorney, and refusing to provide him with a copy of the signed document. He said they forced him to execute this watered-down, lukewarm affidavit. They did so during this interrogation, where, again, they denied him the opportunity to be represented by counsel, even though he confirmed with them that he had counsel. But unknown to the federal investigators, this is the best part of the story, Richard Hopkins was wearing a wire during the interview provided by Project Veritas. And guess what? You can listen to the entire two hour long blitz, I would say, of this interview between these federal agents and Richard Hopkins. It's quite incredible. Of course, I don't have time to play all of it for you, but I want to play a little bit of it for you because I want you to hear for yourself the direction that this country is headed. When we talk about individual things that are going on on the left, things like all of the ballot tampering and all of the stuff that's going on, the the, the claims of fraud that are coming forward in this litigation that's going to move ahead with the Trump administration pushing it, that's one thing. But when you start listening to some of this audio, all of a sudden you realize this is getting kind of scary. I I want you to listen, for example, to this particular cut. This is just a little excerpt. The guy you're going to hear is named Russell Strasser. He's with the U.S. Postal Service Office of Inspector General talking to Richard Hopkins, the whistleblower, while Richard is wearing a wire and recording it all. Listen to what he says. And imagine if you were the one sitting there being interrogated like this. This is cut three. And so let me... Let me make good on that promise right away, okay? This storm is getting crazy, right? And it's out of a lot of people's control. And so the reason they called me in is to try to harness that storm, try to reel it back in before it gets really crazy, okay? Because we have senators involved. We have the Department of Justice involved. We have all... lawyers team has gotten a hold of me. I'm not... Well, I am, actually. I am trying to twist you a little bit because in that, believe it or not, your mind will kick in. Um, We like to control our mind, and when we do that, we can convince ourselves of a memory. But when you're under a little bit of stress, which is what I'm doing to you purposely, um, your mind can be a little bit clearer. And we're going to do a different exercise, too, to make your mind a little bit clearer. Okay? There you go. So, but this is all on purpose. Roger. I'm not scaring you, but I am scaring you here. I'm not scaring you, but I am scaring you a bit. You know, the mind is a tricky thing, and you can come up with memories that never actually occurred, Richard. You know, I'm on your side, Richard. I mean, this is Soviet stuff. It is. And even Project Veritas said this. Ede, who I mentioned before, said this is Banana Republic, Soviet era truth suppression tactics like I've never seen before. It was after this took place that the House Oversight Committee tweeted out that Richard Hopkins had completely recanted his allegations of a supervisor tampering with mail-in ballots after being questioned by investigators. The investigators informed committee staff today that they interviewed Hopkins on Friday, but that Hopkins recanted his allegations 
depositions yesterday and did not explain why he signed a false affidavit. Well, Project Veritas revealed the federal investigators refused to give Richard Hopkins a copy of the document that he had signed. So he couldn't have a lawyer. He didn't know what he was signing. He didn't have a copy of the document he was signing. But somehow the document made its way into the hands of the House Oversight Committee such that they could go public with the information that the mail carrier recanted what he had first said about tampering of ballots in the U.S. Postal Service. And he comes out now, thank the Lord for Project Veritas, giving him the platform to be able to do it, and says, I didn't recant. Everything I said was true. And this was something he discussed a little bit with James O'Keefe. Listen to cut four. It seems like they were trying to make me distrust y'all. And at the same time, it, it, it kind of affected. But at the same time, I was like, no, nah, these guys have had my back since the get go. So I, that's why I continued. Do you these federal agents have your back? At this point, no. Do you think these federal agents are really interested in investigating fraud? Honestly, I don't think they are. And in fact, you heard Weisenberg tell a supervisor they were backdating the ballots to make it appear they've been collected on November 3rd. You still stand by that? Yeah. Yes. There it is. Now, it gets worse because this whistleblower has been taken off his job without pay after he came forward and made it public that there was ballot tampering going on at the Erie Post Office. The Washington Times reports that Hopkins was informed that he had been placed on off-duty non-pay status effective November 10th and that his actions may have placed employees and, quote, yourself, as well as the reputation of the U.S. Postal Service in harm's way. Oh, yes. All oh, those poor snowflakes over at the post office. They could be put in harm's way by the fact that this man went forward and told the truth about the terrible corruption that's present in the Erie, Pennsylvania post office. Well, what is this all about? It's to try to quash anybody who wants to come forward and tell the truth. This is who these people really are. This is who these people really are. So keep that in mind. Now, I have another thing I want to squeeze in here before I run out of time. Did you hear this? interview that took place with Bill de Blasio's daughter. She's the one who was arrested a while back during a protest. She's a leftist protester. Shiera, I don't know if you pronounce it that way. There was a little interview that that was released on the inter, on the internet, an interview, TV interview that took place with her. And listen to what she says about Biden's election and Kamala Harris's election. Cut one. minute. Two things. Joe Biden was able to steal the election. This is the daughter of the New York City mayor who's as far left as it gets. She's saying Joe Biden stole the election. She also refers to Kamala Harris as the first black Asian female president. That's not the first time somebody has slipped up and referred to Kamala Harris as the president. Just keep this in mind and remember what Joe Biden said not too long ago. Cut two. We're in a situation where we have put together, and you guys did, did it for our administration, the President Obama's administration before this. We have put together, I think, the most extensive and inclusive voter fraud organization in the history of American politics. These are some very interesting gaffes, aren't they? Very interesting gaffes. There's a lot of lying going on. And I'll tell you what, if we don't encourage patriotic Americans who are truth tellers to come forward and support them, then we will lose people 
from coming forward. We need to create an environment in the United States, wherever it can be found, for people who want to tell the truth to be able to tell the truth without fear of censorship or fear of being lied about. I mean, this stuff is even going on on Fox News now. Kaylee McEnany shut down by Neil Cavuto this week simply because she made a reference to illegal votes. You know, you don't invent the news, you report the news. And it's very important to keep journalism ethical, which is what we try to do here every day. Thanks for being with us. God bless you for listening. And we'll see you next time right here on Janet Meffer Today.